Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and I'm pleased as always to be joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. We are going to be doing a weekly roundup of big legal and political topics, something that's become a little bit of a habit for us, and I think it's working well. Today, we're going to talk about three different topics. President Biden's first 100 days, including his recent speech. We're going to talk about hate crimes and uh, the attempted kidnapping charges brought against three men in connection with the death of Ahmed Arbery. And we're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani's legal troubles. So let's start with the man who used to be known as America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Joe, should we do a, a very short biographical tour of Rudy Giuliani? Yes, please get us up to speed, Jessica. I once was a resident of New York City. Rudy Giuliani was indeed America's mayor. He was popular. People liked him. And as his allegiance to Donald Trump increased over the years, it seems like he's pioneering the depths of reality as we have come to know it. So tell us, uh, what are the specific legal issues with the trouble he's got himself into here? I think you basically gave us the background there, which is, I mean, and it's hard to remember this in a sense, but during the attacks on 9-11, it was then Mayor Rudy Giuliani who really was in charge and gave a lot of people comfort. And they were looking at how he was handling the attacks real time. And he was the elected official that people were looking at and looking to. And for there was a little bit of time when, for completely understandable reasons, we didn't see President George W. Bush. And of course, Rudy Giuliani had a lot of popularity after that. And the kind of joke was that he ran for president and every speech was uh, a noun, a verb, and then him saying 9-11, because he understood that he gained an enormous amount of goodwill. Now, I think for a lot of people, that goodwill was flushed down the proverbial toilet when he really hitched his wagon to former President Trump and became one of his, if not his most, uh, visible defenders. He became President Trump's uh, personal attorney, and he was out there in the media, you know, peddling conspiracy theories and falsehoods and lies and things that frankly just didn't even make sense. Period. And I think for a lot of people, the question was, will there be any repercussions? And the answer is maybe. So, Joe, you asked me about the legal issue. The legal issue probably that we're looking at is whether or not Rudy Giuliani broke lobbying laws by potentially lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of Ukrainian officials and business people when he was at the same time serving as the former president's personal lawyer. So what statute are we looking at? We're looking at the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Now, everybody, before you feel like you might yawn, this actually is a big deal. It deals with distorting democracy. And if you think about not just how important it is to know who is trying to get the ear of our elected officials, but if people are acting on the behalf of American citizens or citizens of a foreign country or both, And particularly when it comes to lobbying the president, the president has really, really broad authority when it comes to 
foreign affairs. And he isn't checked by Congress in the same way that he is in other situations. So it is very serious to think about who is lobbying the president. And then, Joe, the other thing is that federal officials could be looking into Rudy Giuliani's actions with respect to the 2020 election. Um, Now, former President Trump is under investigation for what could best be described as maybe a pressure campaign in Georgia. And again, we don't know, but there could be, um, they could also be looking into that. So that's, uh, those are the legal issues when it comes to um, the curious case of Rudy Giuliani. Oh, Rudy, 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 you may have gotten yourself into some hot water. We watched this week as the FBI raided his apartment in New York City. So we'll see what comes of that. Now, Jessica, how hard is it to get a warrant against somebody like Rudy Giuliani? It's hard. So when we're thinking about getting a warrant, the first thing to remember is that investigators have to show to a federal judge that there is probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that there would be evidence of that crime in the location that they're searching. So certainly that's not the same as proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but proof of probable cause of a crime is serious. And then what about the fact that we're talking about Rudy Giuliani? One, we're very careful when it comes to search warrants with respect to attorneys, period, because they could have information that implicates the attorney-client privilege. And two, particularly when it comes to an attorney who's the president's, the former president's personal attorney, you can think of a whole host of reasons why you would be concerned and want to really treat this very carefully. And I think that's why this particular search warrant almost certainly would have required sign-off by somebody in the highest levels of the Department of Justice, like the Deputy Attorney General, or depending on the timing, the acting Deputy Attorney General. All right, Jessica, so what's next for Rudy Giuliani? We know he spent a lot of time in the White House as Donald Trump's one of his senior advisors. Are we going to see Rudy Giuliani in the big house? What are the odds, after all this is said and done, to see Rudy Giuliani in federal prison? I know that this is the moment where everybody wants me to say 82%. But, you know, of course, I can't say that. So the investigators are doing exactly what they should be doing, investigating. And they'll go where the evidence takes them. Now, if the evidence indicates that a crime was committed, then they'll seek an indictment. If the evidence indicates that there isn't enough to go forward, then that will be the end of the investigation. So... What will come next? Their separate team of the Department of Justice will likely look to see if there are documents that would fall within the attorney-client privilege and then take those documents out. Then another team would look at the remaining documents, again, to determine is there enough evidence here that you could show proof beyond a reasonable doubt of violations, for instance, of the foreign lobbying laws or potentially anything related to the 2020 election. So we don't know yet, but we do know that this is serious. So what does this mean for the 800-pound gorilla in the room, the former president, Donald Trump? Is he going to be wrapped up in this in any way? Uh, Again, everybody's least favorite answer. So we don't know. Um, I mean, if there's evidence that implicates former President Trump, and again, hypothetical, we don't know if, but if there's evidence that implicates former President Trump, then he doesn't have any immunity as a former president. So he may try and claim that some actions he took while he was president are subject to 
the executive privilege or that he had at least limited immunity as the chief executive. But he does not have protection from an indictment the way the Department of Justice legal memo indicates that a sitting president does. So he has uh, virtually the same protections that any other private citizen does at this point. And that, I think, is the update on the curious case of Rudy Giuliani. And now I know we're going to turn to different federal charges. Yes, let's move on to three men facing federal hate crime charges in Ahmad Arbery's death. On February 23rd of 2020, a 25-year-old African-American man, that's Arbery, was jogging outside the coastal city of Brunswick, Georgia. A father and son named Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, along with William Roddy Bryan, chased Arbery with their vehicles. The McMichaels and Bryan cut off Arbery's jogging route and threatened him with guns. Now, subsequently, a struggle ensued. Arbery was killed after the discharge of one of those guns. The three suspects were each charged by the Department of Justice with one count of interference with rights and one count of attempted kidnapping. They also faced charges at the state level for murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment. And the latest development this week, Jessica, is that a grand jury has charged these three men of federal hate crimes and attempted kidnapping. Now, this event occurred before the murder of George Floyd, which was May of last year. But this event also incited protests across the nation. So, Jessica, my question is, is this a big moment for the DOJ under the Biden administration? Yes, I absolutely think it is a big deal. And let's remember the backdrop of what's going on uh, in the Department of Justice. Under the Biden administration, the Department of Justice is looking into uh, police departments and potential misconduct, like the police department in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered. In this particular case, this is, I believe, the biggest civil rights indictment filed by the Department of Justice under President Biden. So absolutely, this this is a big deal in this truly tragic story. And we've been talking about um, President Biden, and this is the time where I think we're going to talk about his first, I can't believe this, but his first 100 days in office. Joe, I know you watched the speech, as did I. What were some of your initial reactions? What did you see from President Biden? Jessica, this was very much a sea change from the last administration. Biden was speaking in the House chamber where just 115 days ago, an armed mob broke in and lives were lost. So Biden said about that insurrection, quote, the insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive. It did. And this became kind of a theme for the rest of the speech as I saw it. He spoke a lot about the challenges facing America. Visually speaking, the room was largely empty. We are still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, so everyone was socially distanced. Most folks were in masks in that room. This was a medium-length speech. It clocked in at about 65 minutes, which was shorter than Trump's first joint address to Congress, which was 78 minutes. And early in his comments, Biden made reference to the fact that he was the first president to address Congress with a pair of women on the dais behind him, Vice President Kamala Harris and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi sit just behind him, as those two positions always do when the president speaks. He said, quote, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, no president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said these words. And it's about time. Now, Jessica, did this moment have any special resonance for you in any way? Yes, absolutely. And I was thrilled and angry at the same time. It is 
absolutely time and it is absolutely past time that it be entirely normal to see two women in that position of power. And the fact that we're celebrating it, it is cause for celebration, but that we're celebrating it in 2021, that it is not normal, that we have to call it out and talk about it is the reason that I find this exasperating. And you know, we, we could spend hours talking about this, but I, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. Look, this is an important moment for so many reasons. It's important that we have more diversity from people who are making decisions over our lives that our elected officials look more like us with respect to life experience, gender diversity, racial diversity. Um, but that this is such a anomaly uh, that it's such a historic moment is is my moment of disappointment. And with that, rain on the parade. Do you want to get back to the speech, Joe? Oh, I do. But before we move on, uh, former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously, when asked how many female justices should be on the Supreme Court, her answer was, Jessica? Nine, because there were nine men for a long time. And so why not nine women? And that is a great answer because it really forces people to think about their underlying assumptions and to think about how long uh, things have been not balanced when it comes to issues of gender diversity. I couldn't agree more, Jessica. It was a watershed moment, but it has come far too late. So let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about this speech. This speech took place right around Biden's 100th day in office. Now, that's a big benchmark for any president. That's kind of like their first grade from we, the populace, as the teacher would give a kid a grade. Now, Biden has faced in that 100 days what he has called cascading crises. Those are his words. A lingering pandemic, an economic downturn, civil unrest, a combative former president who refused to accept a free and fair election. Now, he portrayed the response to these crises as crucial for the survival of democracy itself. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, but that's the impression he gave throughout this speech. When talking about the pandemic, he said, quote, Our progress these last 100 days against one of the worst pandemics in history is one of the greatest logistical achievements our country has ever seen. Worthy of note here is that Biden did meet his goal in terms of the number of vaccinations he hoped to see take place in his first 100 days. And he also urged Americans to get vaccinated because it's not a foregone conclusion that enough will be vaccinated to reach actual herd immunity. So on a personal level, please, yes, I agree with the president. Go get yourself vaccinated as soon as you possibly can. Biden has spent a very, very long time in politics to get to this moment in his career. He said, quote, it's good to be back. He was impatient a bit through this speech. You know, he did invite Republicans to work with him. He said, quote, I'd like to meet with those who have ideas that are different, but also in a not so veiled indictment of Republican obstructionism, which we've been dealing with now for a couple decades when the Democrats are in charge. He said, quote, but the rest of the world isn't waiting for us. I just want to be clear from my perspective, doing nothing is not an option. So he's calling out the Republicans there when it comes to obstructionism. Now, Biden knows the numbers game. He knows the midterms are just over the horizon. He knows that that clock is ticking. There is an ongoing immigration crisis on our southern border. So there are cascading crises that he's dealing with here. Uh, His poll numbers, also part of that grade here at the 100-day mark, they're pretty solid. Uh, Got a couple sets of numbers here. 
538 pegged Biden at 54%. Trump's at this time, 100 days in, was 42%. Gallup's poll has Biden at 57%, a little higher there. Trump was 41, also a little lower, almost parity. Now, just for comparison's sake, at this point in their respective administrations, their terms, Obama's approval rating was a whopping 65%. George W. Bush's was 62%. That guy's father, George H.W. Bush, was at 58%. Clinton came in at 55%. So my question, I guess, for everyone, somewhat rhetorical, how long will this honeymoon last when you've got high approval numbers? In some ways, you've got nowhere to go but down. And when it comes to the economy, Biden is taking a very different tack from his last several predecessors. Uh, Although his critics, you know, Biden's critics will say to echo Reagan, uh, government is the problem. Now, Joe Biden believes something different. He believes that a well-functioning government can be an anodyne for many of our society's problems. And although this was not a State of the Union speech, as compared to what I'm about to say about Bill Clinton's State of the Union speech in 1996, Clinton said, quote, the era of big government is over. Biden has a different answer to this. He believes the answer to these problems facing our society is trillions in new spending, almost $6 trillion. Now, this includes plans to boost education, child care, family leave, paid family leave, and other things. Now, time will tell if this new COVID economy has changed Americans' minds about the role of government in their lives. But there is some data to back up the ideas that American support is shifting like this. And their thinking is shifting. An NBC poll showed that 55 percent of Americans currently believe that government should do more to solve problems. While on the other side, 41 percent said the government is doing too much. So this approach, Jessica, this is a sea change. We talked about a sea change before. This is another sea change. And it's also a big gamble for a man who's been in top-tier politics for a very, very long time. But watching that speech, I think, Jessica, overall, I'm left with the feeling that Joe Biden seems to have enough optimism for all of us and that we could really use it at this point. We do have those multiple challenges. So, Jessica, you watched that speech as well. What were your thoughts? My thoughts were, one, it's really nice to watch one of these presidential addresses without your shoulders in your ears, just kind of clenching and waiting for something, you know, semi-catastrophic to be said. Uh, But two, it's so interesting to watch President Biden because his style is moderate. But as you said, what he proposed is really bold and really progressive. And I think you use the word sea change. And that's exactly right. I mean, this is a new society in a lot of ways. And he spends a lot of time talking about the economy as a through line, the economy as a through line when it comes to issues of He talks about climate change. He spends a lot of time talking about jobs. He talks about infrastructure. It feels like the economy is almost the body of the octopus, and then there are a lot of things that emanate from it. And the other thing that really struck me is that, well, one, he said doing nothing is not an option, and he really made bipartisanship a national security issue. He said other countries are watching, and while we fight, They're moving ahead. And then the last thing, this to me seemed to be a speech about arguing to people that American democracy works and that it will continue to work. And this will, of course, be the big question. Um, I have anecdotally heard from friends or former students who've said, you know, Joe Biden might not have been my choice in the primaries, but maybe he is the right person for this moment. So we are happy to share these moments with you. And 
we are happy to have these conversations on passing judgment. Just a reminder, if you're along for the ride with us, please do rate and review. And please tweet me anytime you have a comment at Levinson Jessica. You can find Joe on Twitter and Instagram at Day. I'm also on Instagram at Levinson Jessica. And we really want to thank the listeners. Joe? Yes, do tweet Jessica at all hours of the day or night. She does not sleep. She is mining the light at the end of the tunnel for all of us. So, Jessica, thank you for doing that. As she said, we do love sharing these conversations with each and every one of you. We value our listeners so very much. Tweet at her. Tweet at me. I'm at In-Depth Day. You can uh, follow us. You can like us. You can comment. And if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please let us know that, too. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and have a great day, everyone. <laughs>